Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you will. And as you notice, we're reversing the order of our service today. And we've uh, just heard from this incredibly profound passage out of Isaiah that speaks of the suffering servant, the one that would come and give up his life as a part of God's redemptive plan. And I wanted to stay somewhat consistent with that theme as I go through my message and then celebrate the resurrection at the conclusion of that. And so the title of the message today is The Dilemma of Reconciliation. I've heard it said by many pastors throughout my life that Easter and Christmas are sometimes the most difficult sermons to preach because the story is always the same. It doesn't ever change. And for some, they believe that the story needs to be jazzed up. It needs to be made more relevant in our modern technological culture. It seemingly lacks the oomph that we desire in order to help us make the kinds of decisions that would be pleasing to God. But Easter and Christmas are, in fact, the two most profound stories in all of human history because they tell the story of God's redemptive plan for mankind. This redemptive plan is necessary in order to achieve God's ultimate goal for mankind, and that is reconciliation. If man is to know God, if man is to please God, and then be accepted by God, then reconciliation is necessary because man is thoroughly sinful. The Bible tells us that Adam's fall plunged the entirety of the human race into sin. We read in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. All people are sinners from birth, as David very clearly proclaims in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And then again in Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Not only are all people, people sinner, sinners by their nature, but we are also sinners by our actions. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And that is a verse that we ought to memorize and use when people try to proclaim their goodness or their morality or their justification apart from Christ and knowing God or in pleasing God. God says there is none righteous, not a single solitary person. Romans goes on to say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the inevitable outcome for all of us who are infected by the curse of sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. In Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will die. Let me ask you, have you been exempted from the curse of sin? Have you been exempted from the consequence of sin apart from Christ? The answer to that question is absolutely not. The prognosis isn't any better in the spiritual realm because sin produces two disastrous spiritual consequences. The first one is this, alienation from God in this life. Ephesians 2.12 Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, 
and without God in the world. The second disastrous consequence is an an unrelenting punishment in hell for all eternity. Now, there's a lot of debate about the reality of hell. Is it figurative? Is it literal? Is it just a scare tactic? Well, I'll tell you that Jesus Himself said this in Matthew 25, verse 41, Then He will also say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus proclaimed a real and literal and eternal hell. And if He were to do so, as Scripture records, and I am left to believe, that this is the absolute reality that those apart from Christ will face at the end of their time on earth. Now, the dilemma of reconciliation is profound. And I would go so far as to say that you and I probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about how profound the doctrine of of, uh, reconciliation actually is. And we may not give any thought to it at all. But here's the question. How can an absolutely, an infinitely holy God be reconciled to sinners? How can His just and holy law, which demands the condemnation and punishment of all who violate it, be satisfied? How can those who deserve no mercy receive it? How can God uphold true righteousness and give grace? How can the demands of both justice and love be met? How can God be both just and the justifier of sinners? As hard as these questions seem to be for mankind to answer, our focus first today, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 15 words in the Greek text resolves the dilemma of reconciliation. This sentence reveals the essence of the atonement. It expresses the heart and good news of the gospel message. And it articulates the most glorious truth in Scripture, how fallen man's sin-separated, sin-stained relationship to God can be restored. This verse is like a treasure trove of rare jewels, each requiring a careful examination under the magnifying glass of Scripture. And here is the verse. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We'll divide this verse into four very simple parts which will create our outline. Roman number one, the benefactor. The benefactor is implied in the very first part of verse 21. He made, and from the context of the preceding verses, it is clear that Paul is referring to God the Father. Now, if you look up just a few verses in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 18, we see the context of what God is saying through the Apostle Paul and how this verse of reconciliation is applied within the family of God. Beginning in verse 18, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore... 
We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul is applying that God the Father, He made. So the plan of reconciliation is His plan. And it could not occur unless God initiated it and unless God completed it by His divine plan. Mankind cannot devise a plan of reconciliation because as Ephesians 2.1 affirms, we are all dead in our trespasses and in our sin. But that reality, reality does not stop mankind from attempting to complete some form of reconciliation on their own. So the world is filled with false and futile attempts to reach God on their own, who is, apart from Christ, an unreachable God. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This is, this is our spiritual condition apart from Christ. So how can an individual who is dead in his sin, whose best efforts are like filthy garments in the sight of God, how can that individual create a plan of reconciliation that would satisfy a holy and a righteous God? The reality is mankind cannot. So because this is true, God the Father, our benefactor, initiated His own plan of reconciliation that remained in His heart and mind from before the foundation of the world. Think about this. Jesus did not go to the cross because fickle people turned on Him, even though they did. He did not go to the cross because demon-deceived, false religious leaders plotted His death, even though they did. He did not go to the cross because Judas betrayed Him, even though he did. He did not die because an angry, unruly mob intimidated a Roman governor into sentencing him to crucifixion, even though they did. Jesus went to the cross as a result of God's plan to reconcile sinners to himself. Only God could design an atonement for sin that would satisfy the demands of His justice, appease His wrath, and be consistent with His love, grace, and mercy. Now make no mistake about it, reconciliation flows out of the love and grace and mercy of God. And apart from those attributes... There would be no plan of reconciliation. Look at what it says here in Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. Do you see it? The love and the grace and the mercy of God communicated to us through His plan of reconciliation. He does not need to be appeased and cannot be appeased by any human means. Instead, listen to this, He Himself has provided His own appeasement for justice and the means for sinners to become His beloved children through 
the sacrifice of His own Son. John Stott says it like this, God gave Himself in His Son for our salvation. God the Father is our great benefactor who has given to us far more than our earthly minds can grasp and appreciate in this divine plan of reconciliation. Roman numeral 2 in our outline. We have our benefactor. Secondly, we have the substitute. Verse 21 begins, He made and continues Him who knew no sin to be sin. An incredibly profound truth tucked into this section of verse 21. This points us to the only possible sacrifice for sin because every human who has ever lived has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only one without sin of his own could qualify to bear the full wrath of God against the sin of others. The perfect sacrifice for sin would have to be a human being for only a man could die for another man. Yet he would also have to be God for only God is sinless. That narrows the field of the billions of people who have ever lived on this earth to a single solitary individual, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. In the design of God, the second person of the Trinity became a man. The incredible incarnation that we observe at Christmas for the purpose of completing His plan for reconciliation, which is the profound promise of Easter. The plan of reconciliation doesn't exist apart from Christmas and Easter, the supposedly most boring stories in all the Bible, but are in fact the most profound stories in all of human in history. Jesus was born of a woman with the Holy Spirit as His Father. And oh, by the way, the Gospels never called Joseph His Father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was free from, the, from sin and the stain of sin. He lived a sinless, perfect life just as Holy Scripture communicates to us. This God-man knew no sin and lived a sinless, perfect life. John 8.46, Jesus challenged His Jewish opponents, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Before sentencing Him to death, Pilate, who oversaw Jesus' civil trials, repeatedly affirmed His innocence, beginning in Luke 23.4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Verse 14 of the same chapter. And said to them, You brought this man to Me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. And then finally, in verse 22, and he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. To which the crowd shouted out, crucify, crucify, 
crucify. Even the repentant thief on the cross would say of Jesus in Luke 23, 41, and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. When Jesus died and breathed His last, the hardened, callous Roman centurion who has probably overseen dozens if not hundreds of crucifixions in his life admitted in Luke 23, 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God saying, certainly this man was innocent. But let's look at what the people who followed Jesus so closely for the three plus years of His earthly ministry had to say about this man that they had devoted their lives to. Peter would publicly proclaim in his first sermon in Acts chapter 3, you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He will go on to say in his first letter that we have recorded in our Bible, 1 Peter 1.19, But with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then in 2.22, He committed no sin nor was any deceit found in His mouth. The Apostle John would write in 1 John 3.5, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. Now I want to tell you, if you followed me for three and a half years in my life, you would not be able to say that that is a man who is holy and righteous, that that is a man who is spotless and without any blemish, that that is not a man who is without sin. But these men would say that about Jesus because they observed every day of His public ministry and they went to their own death proclaiming the truth about who He was. And in fact, all but one of the original twelve disciples died a martyr's death holding on to and clinging to the truth of, of who Jesus claimed to be. The inspired writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews 4.15 we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then in Hebrews 7.26 for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. But the most powerful testimony concerning Christ's sinlessness comes not from those who followed Him, but from God the Father Himself, who on two occasions would proclaim, first at His baptism, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then later as recorded in Matthew chapter 17 at His transfiguration, This is My beloved Beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. So this God man, who was born of a woman, conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived the entirety of his life without any sin, this God man, who knew no sin, became sin. This is treated in the past tense, as it was written by the Apostle Paul. He made him who knew no sin to become sin, to be sin. This does not mean that Christ became a sinner, 
But the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him. All those sins were charged against him as if he had personally committed them and he was punished with the penalty for them on the cross, experiencing the full fury of God's wrath unleashed against all of that sin. It was at that very moment that Jesus would cry out in a loud voice, as recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our sin was assigned to Him. He died in our place, taking our punishment upon Himself. He did not become a sinner, but God imputed to Him our sin as our atoning sacrifice. Paul would write to the church at Galatia in 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God the Father, our benefactor, gave His one and only Son as a substitute. And we are, number three on our outline, the beneficiaries. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The children of God. Now, from the context of the previous verses, which I've already read, we can see that this this verse refers to the believing community. Look back up again at verse 19 through the beginning part of verse 20. That God was in Christ reconciling the the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the world of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So, who does God not count trespasses against? Who are the ambassadors for Christ? It is the believing community, those who place their faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If not for the requirement of faith, which results in salvation, the cross would bring universal salvation regardless of faith and repentance. But through our faith, we become the beneficiaries of His work on the cross so that we are no longer alienated, we are no longer separated, we are no longer hostile towards God, but we have become the children of God. To as many as received Him, John would say, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. Now this brings us to number four in our outline, and that is very simply the benefit. The benefit of the benefactor giving His one and only Son as a substitute for us creates an incredible benefit. Verse 21 concludes, so that we might become, future tense, the righteousness of God in him. So the benefit is that we become righteousness. We become righteous. Those who are without any worthwhile deeds, those who were dead, 
those who had no pathway to an infinite, holy, and righteous God, we now become the benefactors of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross so that we can become the righteousness of God in Him. Just as God assigned the sin of the saved to Jesus' account, God also assigned the righteousness of Jesus to the believer's account. This is what is called the great exchange. You take all of your sin, a lifetime of sin, a lifetime of unrighteousness, thoughts and attitudes and actions, every idle thought, every idle word, you take it all and you give it to Christ at the cross and He gives to you His righteousness. Think about that. Giving to Him the worst of all that we are and Him giving to us the best of who He is. The great exchange. We are beneficiaries of what God has chosen to do in this divine plan of reconciliation by giving to us what rightfully belongs to Christ and giving to Christ what rightfully belongs to us. Philippians 3.9, believers are found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, you can't live a life of morality and achieve the righteousness of Christ. You can't do your very best to uphold every tenet of your religious pursuits or of what your denomination might say you have to do in order to be saved and acceptable to God. All you have to do is exchange through faith your guilty, sinful condition and receive salvation and forgiveness and His righteousness. And God declares you to be clean just as He is clean. The very righteousness of God requires is a requirement before He can accept the sinner. This is the very righteousness that He provides. The righteousness that God requires before He can accept the sinner is the very righteousness that He provides through our faith in Him. Because Jesus paid the full penalty penalty for all the believer's sin, God no longer holds that sin against the believer. The Bible tells us many, many wonderful truths about the forgiveness of God and what God metaphorically does through our faith in Him. Now, even before Christ came onto this earth and gave up His life as a ransom for many, you had individuals in the Old Testament who still were sanctified and made righteous through their faith. So we read in the Bible, in Psalm 103.12, David says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Two lines, east and west, to never ever meet. That's what God has done with our sin. Isaiah 38, 17. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. 
That's what God has chosen to do with our sin. And metaphorically, He places it in the spot in the middle of our back that we could never ever see. This is what God metaphorically does with our sin. He hides it from Himself. Isaiah 44.22 Excuse me, 43.25 Even I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God chooses to not hold our sin against us. Isaiah 44.22 I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then finally, in Micah 7.19 Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of of the sea. This is what God has done with the mountain of sin that you and I would have been held responsible for, but have instead exchanged at the cross for the very righteousness of Christ. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived our lives with all our sin, so that God could then treat us as if we lived Christ's life of pure holiness. Think about that. Our sinful life was legally charged to Him on the cross as if He had lived it, so that His righteous life could be credited to us as if we lived it. This is the doctrine of justification by imputation and is the high point of the gospel. God impugned our sin on Christ and He died in our place. And the exchange is that God imputed Christ's righteousness to us so that we could become His very righteousness. That is the profound proclamation of Easter. This truth which is expressed so concisely and powerfully in this verse is the only provision for man's reconciliation. There is no hope for man apart from God's divine plan initiated at the Incarnation, completed at the cross, and then victoriously celebrated through the empty tomb. It isn't just about Christ dying, but it's about Christ being raised from the dead and providing for us victory over sin and victory over death, and just as He was raised from the dead, so will those who have placed their faith in Him, and we will be raised just as He was raised. He proved to be victorious over sin and death, and provides a confident hope to believers that we will also be Raised, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55-57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The divine plan of of reconciliation. God has resolved this dilemma for mankind. We no longer have to strive in our own effort through our own means to accomplish the appeasement of God. It has been provided for us 
through our faith in the finished work of the cross, celebrated through the empty tomb, proving that Jesus is who He claimed to be, and that God was well pleased with His one and only Son. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we give to You great praise and great thanks for the victory that is ours by no merit of our own, but simply through the call of the Gospel message by which You've given us faith to understand and apply. God, I pray that the common story of Easter would just have an absolutely profound impact in our life, that we would be captured and mesmerized and humbled by what it is You've done for us through Christ. Father, I thank You that the story doesn't end with Jesus dying on the cross, but it is celebrated through the empty tomb, which is the cause for our celebration, His resurrection, which is our hope for an eternity with You. We give You thanks and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.